0: We continue in our series in John, and this morning we are looking at the best thing that ever happened, ever happened for us. We're looking at the death, the burial, and next week the resurrection of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. It's the best thing ever that happened for us. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that your word, your word tells us that it's living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to discern between soul and spirit. It penetrates. And so, Lord, we pray that your word to us this morning will be sharp and active and that it will accomplish all that you purpose for it we would say in our own hearts with Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. We pray in Jesus' name for his kingdom in our lives. Amen. John 19, I'm going to read from verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. I'm sure you all know they would break the legs to prevent the victim from breathing. You would suffocate because you can't hold yourself up any longer. It's to accelerate death. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. Who is this man? Who is this nameless person who saw it and tells the truth? Do you remember? It's John. Thank you. Thanks, Pete. Glad you're here. (laughs) He's speaking about himself. He's saying... I was there, I saw it, I'm telling you. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. The scriptures that say not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture that says they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus's body That verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. What an oddity. Why mention it? Why include that detail? It seems a bit incidental. Any police detective will tell you that false witnesses who seek to bring evidence don't have incidental detail. They only have the essential bare facts that they're concocting. Honest, true bringers of evidence have incidental detail. This, to John, was a curiosity. It seemed it was incidental. Why did he include it? Why did he say it? Well, because it happened. It's what he saw. But what John didn't know is that 2,000 years later, medical science would tell us something of huge significance about this detail. That beyond any shadow of a doubt, the body of Jesus was dead. How do we know that? Well, normally an adult heart contains 50 cc's of pericardial fluid, a clear liquid. And research, including 20 years of research at Massachusetts State Hospital, University Hospital, has found that when a person dies of a ruptured heart, there is more than half a litre of accumulated pericardial fluid. And if pierced, it would, under pressure, flow out as fluid and clotted blood. Does that matter? Well... Among other things, among other other groups, our Muslims assert that Jesus survived crucifixion. He didn't die, went in the tomb, and he revived. And if that's right, if Jesus didn't die, then there was no sacrifice. There was no atonement for our sins. He didn't rise from the dead. And if he didn't rise, then our faith in a risen saviour is without foundation. And we're still lost and condemned in our sins. The death and the grave are essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And once again, we see through a little bit of textual criticism that the New Testament documents authenticate themselves. So Joseph of Arimathea, he goes boldly to Pilate with his request. And so the body of Jesus Instead of being thrown into Gehenna, the city at the side of the city, the rubbish pit, where I'm sure the two other bodies would have been thrown, the body of Jesus is treated with tenderness, honour and respect. And Nicodemus, good old Nicodemus, he brings 75 pounds. That's about half my weight of myrrh and aloes, a huge amount, enough to embalm a king. And in fulfillment of ancient prophecy, none of his bones are broken. He is with a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, in his death. They will look upon the one who they pierced, from Zechariah 12. But Jesus, too, spoke prophetically about his own death and burial. In John 12, from 23, we read, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Unless a kernel, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. What what is he talking about? Any gardener, any farmer knows the truth about what happens to a seed. You can keep seeds on a shelf for a long time. And what happens absolutely nothing. They just stay as they are. But when buried in the ground, something happens. It's almost magical. I hope many of you have experienced it. Something amazing happens. Something powerful happens. Think about it. Where does all our food originate? It originates from the germination of seeds. Something wonderful, happens when a seed dies. If seeds didn't die, we would have all starved. But the cost is, and there is a cost, the seed ceases to be what it was. It becomes something entirely new, something glorious, something growing. What is Jesus talking about? Who is Jesus talking about? Well, first of course, He's talking about himself, the son of man. He's saying, I have to die. I have to go into the ground or there'll be no harvest. But he continues, anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's not just talking about himself. His death, his burial, He's talking about us, you, me. He's saying, love your life in this world, your worldly life. In other words, stay as a seed, just a seed, and you'll lose your life. What's he saying? Jesus is calling us. He's challenging us to follow him to the cross, to the grave, to lose our life for him. Whoever loses their life for me, Jesus says, will save it. It's pretty unequivocal, isn't it? There's no shades of gray there. It's, you know, it's digital, isn't it? It's yes or no, it's black and white. And Paul explains things a little more in, in Romans 6. He's saying, don't you know, That all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You know, we're going to see some people baptised at Easter. And baptism isn't about washing. It's about dying. It's a watery grave. The person is immersed into the grave, into the water, as a watery grave. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. We see the same truth in that Galatians 2.20 verse, we often quote, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What's this telling us? That it says we share in the death of Jesus, that we share in his life. For the new to come, the old has to pass away. It has to die. Consider an acorn on the forest floor. It's got some options. It could be lunch for a deer and be pooed out eventually. Or it could just stay as it is, lay there and during the course of winter, rot away. But there is an alternative destiny, isn't there? And it's glorious. What is that? The acorn gets buried and it transforms. It's completely metamorphosized into, ultimately, a great oak tree. Are you like me? I, when we were out walking sometimes, I just, sometimes I just stop and stand and stare at a tree, big oak trees particularly. Good job, Lord. That's great. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. And so it is for us. We too can be consumed by whatever we give ourselves to. Or we can choose an alternative destiny. If a seed stays on the shelf, it stays alone. But if it goes into the ground and dies, it gives up its life as a seed. It loses its present life as a seed, it gains a new life. We see the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It is a trustworthy saying, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. So what does that mean, really? What does that mean for us? to die with him in practice? How today, this week, this month, this year, if you wanted to, how would you die in him? What would that look like? Well, I've got five little signposts. The dead don't always get their way. Do you know, you can leave instructions for heavy metal music to be played at 100 decibels at your funeral but that's no guarantee that it's going to happen. Do the dead worry about getting their own way? Having to win? Do they worry about having to be right? Or saving face? None of those things, no. There's no self-proclaiming, there's no self-promoting, in fact, there's no self-anything. I had a colleague once, Ron, and a horrible dispute arose between his department and another department, and things got stuck, and it became a pride thing. No one was going to back down, no one was going to take responsibility for something, it was falling between them, not my job, was the the attitude. Do you know, I used to pray with Ron before work once a week, because he's a lovely Christian man, a few weeks later, because I wasn't directly involved in this thing, but a few weeks later I, I, I had to ask him, I said, how did you get that thing resolved? And he said, well, someone had to die a bit. So I died a bit. And that resolved the problem. Those who've passed from death to life don't have to get their own way. They don't have to be seen to be right or clever. They don't have to justify themselves because actually they're already justified. What's the exemplar of dying to self, not getting your own way? The exemplar is this, Father, would that this cup will pass from me, but nevertheless not my will, but your will be done. Secondly, I suspect that many of us have never seen a real corpse, a real dead body, in real life. First time it happened to me was some years ago when I noticed the blinds in the house over the road hadn't moved for a whole day, and the car was stationary on the drive, and I just had a sense that something wasn't right. So I took my long ladder, I climbed over the gate, I climbed up and through the bathroom fanlight window only to find old Fred, Freddy. In bed, cold, stiff and lifeless. He'd had a heart attack in his sleep. He lived alone. Now Freddy, I know, liked a drink every now and again. And I imagine if I held up a nice glass of Johnny Walker, what would his reaction be? No reaction. No attraction. Offer him a cigarette. He did smoke. No, no attraction, no reaction. See, the dead are dead to sin. And you may be thinking, well, I could never be free of sin. What's the point of trying even? Or imagining that I could be? Do you know the true mark of, of spiritual regeneration, Of the true mark of spiritual maturity is not that one lives a completely sin-free life, it is the hatred of it. It's to come to hate your sin. You know, as the Holy Spirit opens our hearts to the love of God, when your love for Jesus grows, when you see what sin did to the one that you love, you come to hate your sin. You know, our new birth in Christ doesn't yet give us a new perfection, but it does give us a new direction. Romans 6, 11, exhorts us to count, to reckon, to consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to, to Jesus Christ, alive to God in Christ Jesus. The dead are dead to sin. When you go on holiday, can you manage with 20 kilos? Do you take a lot of baggage? All those shoes, (laughs) yeah. How much does anyone take, how much baggage does anyone take with them when they die? The dead carry no baggage. Dead in Christ, we can leave all our baggage behind, our guilt, our shame, our fear, our fear of punishment, our sense of inadequacy, all of it. I love the beginning of Romans 8. Well, actually, I love all of Romans, but Romans 8 begins, therefore, actually, let's get the version you've got on the screen. So now there is no, I nearly said there is now some, there is now a bit, is there a a smidgen of condemnation? for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no, zero, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because as we sang at the beginning of our time, he set us free. He's broken the chains. No condemnation. The dead don't carry baggage. I heard that William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was invited to speak at a big conference, once every ten years in America. Within William Booth's lifetime, the Salvation Army got really going in America. We're having a convention! Will you come and be our keynote speaker? And initially he said that he would, and then he sent a message to say, I'm not going to be able to attend in person, because he was a very old man by then. I'll send the message. We got nearer and nearer to the conference, and the message hadn't arrived. And and, and then they queried, where's the message? And he sent a message saying, I'm going to send send a telegram. So on the day of the convention, the the keynote message for the next 10 years for the Salvation Army in America was, was, here was the telegram. And the the general, whoever he was in charge, opened the, I have the telegram from William Booth. This is the keynote speech, and he opened it. And in the telegram was one word others. That was the message, others. Those who are dead to self can focus on the needs of others. Others. Finally, my fifth signpost. Tom, Dick and Harry were great friends. They would meet up for a drink quite often and chew the card. And uh, actually, Harry would often buy the round, because of the three of them, he was really well set up. Harry was wealthy. And one day, Tom met with Dick, and he said, Harry's passed away. (gasps) Really? And and yeah, they read his will. Really? What did he leave? Everything. (laughs) He left everything. What does a dead person own? Nothing. The dead own nothing. They've given it all to somebody else. Those who follow Jesus into the death of self have let go of it all. Have you ever heard of something called a living will? I've heard of it, but I don't have a clue what it is. But I do know someone who one day wrote this in their journal. Quote, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. Dead to self in Christ, I give my earthly possessions, home, investments, bank balances, cars, tools, equipment, furniture, books, my beloved wife and all my family relationships and friend relationships, my, not very impressive, achievements, status, reputation, my time energy, any such abilities as he has or may given me, I give all to Jesus Christ, my beloved Savior and Lord. While I retain possession of all these blessings, all of which I have received from his gracious hand, I transfer hereby ownership of all to him and hold them to his order as steward, to deploy as he wills. To the extent these assets give me the ability, the power, to exert influence or bring change, I will use them at his command, but otherwise hold them safe as his agent. And then he signed it and put the date. The dead own nothing. But those who are alive in Christ possess all that he has blessed and entrusted to them. And they hold it as his agent awaiting instructions. Now, Jesus, like a seed, died and went into the ground. Jesus chose to accept death. Jesus chose to accept the cross, to go into the tomb and there, dead like a seed, to wait. So, what do you choose? Do you choose to keep your life, to keep hold, to keep control, to keep ownership? You do appreciate the difference between ownership and possession. When I borrow your car, I possess it, but I don't own it. I'm holding it, as it were, on your behalf. So do you choose to keep your life, to keep hold, to keep ownership? And if Jesus' words are true, then ultimately, to lose, to lose out. Or will you follow him? to the cross and share in his life share in his death and then by your obedience to his will to share in his life but just a moment why? it's a bit heavy Brian why? why is Jesus asking you to follow him to the cross and die and die to self and live for him. Shall I tell you, he's asking you to do that because he loves you. And when somebody loves you, they want the best for you. And Jesus knows this is the best for you. It's love first. Love first of all. Love right at the top of the page. At the top of the page Jesus has written I love and then there's your name and I invite your name to follow me to the cross to die to self to give yourself and be remade because Jesus was remade wasn't he? he? He wants to make you not a servant although Those who love him, love to serve him. He wants to make you great. He wants to make you beautiful. He wants to make a new you. He wants to make you like him. He wants to give you the most fulfilling life, the most exciting life, the most true life. But it begins with a decision to die to self. If like a seed, you surrender, you surrender your self-centered self to follow him to the cross, to be able to say with sincerity, I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me what he will make of you will be far more beautiful far more glorious than you could ever imagine or anticipate I mean what happened to Jesus when he went down this road to the cross to complete death to self what happened what was the result what was the outcome Well, you know, you know he rose from the grave, but it didn't end there, did it? Billions of people's lives have been transformed. Billions of people's lives have been radicalized, transformed. Huge ramifications all over the world. Healings, salvations, lives redeemed. Billions of people whose lives and eternities have been completely reversed. Out of darkness. And into his marvellous light and presence. That's what happens when the seed dies. Will you follow him to the cross? I have been crucified with Christ. Is that you? That's his call. All four gospel writers tell us about Joseph of Arimathea. They tell us of a rich, respected, honourable man. A man of bearing, a member of the council, the Sanhedrin. Now, many legends about Joseph of Arimathea have grown up over the centuries, including one that he was a metal dealer who came with Jesus as a teenager to southwest England to trade in Cornish tin which inspired William Blake to write a poem, and did those feet in ancient times walk up on England's mountains green? Almost certainly, no. (laughs) John alone tells us that Nicodemus, being part of the burial party, having introduced him in chapter three, having, you know, Nicodemus coming at night, Introducing him as a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. It seems that Joseph and Nicodemus have much in common. They're both senior religious and political figures. They're both rich and influential. They're both disciples of Jesus. And they're both afraid. They're both secret disciples. But something is happening now to Joseph and Nicodemus. Both are acting openly, going to Pilate, asking for the body of a criminal crucified for treason. When the coward is willing and the opportunity is seized, God can make a coward as bold as a lion do you know how words change over time, yeah? You know, when I was a kid, sick was that stuff on the floor when some kid couldn't hold on to his lunch. Now, apparently, it's something really good. It's like sick, <laughs> yeah. And when I was a kid, coming out was, you coming, are you coming out to play? That was coming out. Now, apparently, it's something completely different. Coming out. Who knew? Well, Joseph and Nicodemus have something else in common. They're both coming out. And it makes me recall the powerful words of Jesus when he says, I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to me. Look, it's already working. <laughs> His death up on a cross has drawn these two cowards out into the light. And their timid faith has come out into the open. To use an old naval expression, by going openly to Pilate, by doing what what they did, they finally nailed their colours to the mast. Yeah? Do you know the origin of that expression? It's all down to a chap called Jack. Crawford. He was a sailor. Sailing ships were identified by their flags, or they called them colors, that were flown from the top of their mast. Sometimes the ship would adopt a disguise by hoisting other flags and would fly under false colors and only later show their true colors. The fleet was led by a flagship. Taking down the flagship colors was a signal of surrender. We give up. You take down the colors on the flagship. In a sea battle in 1798 against the Dutch, the colors the colours on the British flagship were shot down by cannon. The top of the mast was blown off, and a sailor called Jack Crawford grabbed the colours, climbed to the top of what remained of the mast, and nailed them to the mast. The battle continued. The Dutch fleet were destroyed, and a victory was gained that was instrumental in Britain ruling the waves for the next 150 years. Sometimes, a captain would deliberately nail their colors to the mast. Why would they do that? Well, firstly, to show clearly this is who we are and this is who we serve. But also, they would do that to say there's never going to be a surrender. Surrender is now impossible. Nailing your colors to the mast is something that's hugely relevant to us living in an increasingly aggressive, secular age. There's a great temptation to sail under false colors and go unnoticed. But these aren't the orders of our captain, are they? What are the orders of our captain? You are the light of the world. A city on a hill, you don't put a light under a barrel. His instructions are, nail your colours to the mast. Do the people who move around you on a daily basis know you for who you really are? Do they know your true identity as a child of God and a follower of Jesus? Hmm? Do you know it's springtime out there? Seeds in the ground are dying and springing into new life all around us. Will you be that seed that falls into the ground, into Christ, and dies? Will you follow Jesus to the cross? Is it time for you to come out? It's time for the worship team to come forward. (laughs) Will you, will you? Will you come to him? Will you come to him, the one who gave it all? Will you surrender? Will you come and die? Will you follow him to the cross? Will you choose to nail his colors to the top mast of your life. May it be so. I pray that you will. The choice is yours. Seed on the shelf remains alone. The seed that dies becomes transformed.